0: Hello, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to the podcast series, Faculty in Research. We're joined today with Brad Jensen, the McCrane Shaker Chair in International Business at the McDonough School of Business. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in the district and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Brad pioneered the use of plant-level microdata to investigate the impact of international trade and investment on the larger economy. His more recent work examines the impact of trade and services on the economy. He's been supported by a variety of foundations, both federal and private, His work appears in the leading scholarly journals, the American Economic Review, Review of Economics and Statistics, and others. He's been cited in the popular press, including The Economist, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Fortune, and Business Week. His work was referenced in the U.S. Trade Representative's letter to Congress in 2013, announcing the administration's intention to enter into negotiations on a new trade agreement aimed at promoting international trade in services, based on his work. Prior to joining Georgetown in 2007, Brad served as deputy director at the Peterson Institute, but he also served earlier as the director of the Center for Economic Studies at the U.S. Census Bureau on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon University and as a visiting professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. It's indeed that journey that brought him to us that I find interesting. A lot of our colleagues, Brad, as you know, have a traditional route to their professorial positions that begins in undergraduate, goes to a graduate school, does a PhD, and enters the faculty ranks directly from that. You had a different life experience. I'm interested in how you ended up at Georgetown and how you see, in retrospect, those various steps you took.
1: Uh, You're right, Bob, it was a long and circuitous route to Georgetown. When I graduated from Kalamazoo College, I took a job at Arthur Anderson's Management Information Consulting Division, which is what the part of Arthur Anderson that became Accenture, and learned a lot about computer systems specifically financial systems at firms, and really enjoyed that, but then decided to go do a PhD in economics at Stanford. When I left Stanford, I took a job at the U.S. Census Bureau as a staff economist in a small research group called the Center for Economic Studies. And the center's job was to take data that the Census Bureau produces and do research with it to improve census programs. The center developed longitudinal versions of many of the cross sectional data sets that the Census Bureau collects and provides access to those data sets to academic researchers through approved protocols. I worked at CES for four years and then moved to Carnegie Mellon as a research scientist to run the first university-based research data center, which was a satellite data enclave of the Center for Economic Studies in Pittsburgh that allowed researchers with approved projects to do work with this census microdata. After two years of that, I was invited to move back to the Center for Economic Studies and serve as, as its director. Did that for four years and over that four years uh, the national science foundation decided to back a national network of research data centers uh, so it was involved in that exciting enterprise to expand the rdc network but after four years of that I was approached by what was then the Institute for International Economics, what's now the Peterson Institute for International Economics, to serve as the deputy director there, which seemed like an exciting opportunity. So I moved to the Peterson Institute, and like all the experiences before that, it was just a wonderful learning experience. I learned just a ton about international economics, international economic policy, macroeconomics from my colleagues at the Peterson Institute. And after four years there, through a variety of informal conversations, I learned of an opportunity at the McDonough School of Business and moved to Georgetown in 2007. And it's been fantastic to be at Georgetown. For me, it's it's kind of the best of all the worlds. I still am a special sworn status researcher at the Census Bureau. I still have a non-resident senior fellow appointment at the Peterson Institute.
0: And I get to participate in the wonderful community at Georgetown. So in retrospect, viewing your decisions now, what do you think you were missing at the Peterson Institute that you thought you would get by coming to Georgetown? The biggest
1: thing that I was missing at the Peterson Institute, though many of my colleagues at the Peterson Institute were not missing this, uh, the thing that I was missing at the Peterson Institute was freedom. I was the deputy director, so I was basically the COO. I was not a senior fellow when I was at the Peterson Institute. I continued to do research while I was at the Peterson Institute, but I did it in my abundant spare time. So the biggest attraction to move to Georgetown was the ability to control my time. I enjoy having a portfolio of activities. I enjoy, you know, whether you could want to call it managing or administration or whatever. I enjoy some of that. I enjoy the teaching. I enjoy the research. Georgetown offered the opportunity to get the portfolio better balanced for me. Understood.
0: I wonder if you could expand on a couple of things you said, because I, I want to make sure our audience is aware of how revolutionary your work is with regard to liberating some data so important. Macro and micro economists from highly secure but closed off sources in the federal government and give us a sense of the ability for an economist to do research of the character you're now doing and you've done for several years before the freedoms offered by these research data centers?
1: I think I'm going to repeat back to you a story you told me once. This was part of the story behind the RDCs. The Census Bureau, when it endeavored to produce public use micro data sets from the decennial censuses, decennial household censuses, and from the current population survey, where it would suppress identifying information, add a little noise or swap fields, and produce micro data that researchers could use, it revolutionized certain areas in social science, labor economics, household economics, demography, sociology. I mean, I think it was transformative. And the problem for people who are interested in studying firms is that it was not possible to anonymize firm level data or establishment level data. You just can't hide Going without destroying the analytical value of the data. The alternative that the Census Bureau pursued was to, instead of producing restricted data sets that hid key variables, this was restricted access, where the Census Bureau allowed qualified researchers with approved projects to come inside the Census Bureau and work with confidential respondent-level data collected from establishments and firms. And it has been transformative. Again, like with the household data, revolutionized a number of subfields within economics. Uh, If you think of the transformative work that's been done by John Haltewanger at the University of Maryland on job creation and destruction, you know, that has been pathbreaking and impactful research. Some of the work by Mark Roberts and Tim Dunn on plants and productivity and dynamism also pathbreaking work i came along later with co-authors and we looked at the international dimensions of this and plant level microdata both that's collected by the us government but also collected by governments around the world has had an enormous impact on The subfield of international trade and investment. And governments around the world provide the access in different ways. In the United States, we've decided on this restricted access model, it can make a career. Access to this kind of data early in your career can have a transformative effect. It's had a transformative effect on my career. I've seen many others where it's had a you know just a transformative and on the profession. If you look at international trade now, it doesn't look anything like the international trade. That I learned as a graduate student.
0: And this access to data, as I understand it, it is done with full protections and fulfillment of the confidentiality pledges. So it seems like just a wonderful example of more information being extracted to help the world without intruding on the privacy of these firms and the fears they have of their attributes being revealed to competitors in any way. Yeah.
1: Yes. And if I may add, the other big value proposition, if you will, of these data enclaves is the researchers have creative ways to bring together existing data to increase the usefulness of data that the U.S. taxpayer has already paid for. So, for example, I've been involved in a project linking import and export transactions level data collected by customs, to the Census Bureau's business register, which is the list of all firms within the U.S. It gives us a much richer picture of firms' international engagement by bringing together these two existing data sets. I'm currently working with colleagues at the Census Bureau and at the Bureau of Economic Analysis to bring together BEAs' data on multinational companies to bring it into this mix, to match it to the Census Bureau's business register, to provide, I won't say it's the full picture, but it is a far more complete picture of firms' international engagement than was conceivable 20 years ago.
0: So in addition to being one of the important founders of this, what is now a network of research data centers spread throughout the country to give access, you're founding another activity here at Georgetown, a brand new undergraduate major that is uniquely shared between the business school and the School of Foreign Service. As I understand it, it actually fits your research interests, but it's an educational thrust that's really quite unique. Tell us how you got into that. What excites you about building this new program?
1: Yes, well, I should say that the Bachelors of Science in Business and global affairs program that you're referring to is like the RDC network. I didn't dream it up. I just happened to be there at a time when it grew. Likewise with BGA, I was not part of the task force that you impaneled that imagined this ambitious program. I'm just part of a team of people that's trying to help launch it. But when presented with the opportunity to contribute to the launch of the program, it's exciting. I think the program that the task force envisioned, it's ambitious and it's exciting. And I think it speaks very much to me personally because of my personal experience. And I think it speaks or draws on or will highlight Georgetown's unique comparative advantage
0: if you will. Well, tell Um, us a bit about what's distinctive about the curriculum and the experiences these undergraduate students will have.
1: So the, the most distinctive feature
0: of the degree
1: program is a sequence of courses that you could think of as the major courses. So it's a sequence of seven courses. And these courses have several design objectives. The first and most important one is that all of these courses will be co-designed and co-delivered by business school and SFS faculty. So trying to yoke faculty from different disciplinary perspectives, different schools, and I can attest to you that the cultures in the business school, in the School of Foreign Service. This may come as a shock, but they're different. So we're, we're bringing together faculty from different disciplinary backgrounds, different experience backgrounds, different orientations, and yoking them together to develop integrative courses that look at an issue from a variety of perspectives. So the first year course is called Global Markets and Politics. We've had political scientists and economists come together to engage with first year students on how markets and politics interact. So that's been exciting. I've been involved in the design and delivery of that first year course. And I can tell you it's a lot more work than doing it on your own, but it's exciting and it's energizing. And I think we're doing it for the second time now. And I think we see evidence of the promise of this approach of bringing different perspectives together in front of students in the same course and showing them kind of the different views of the same issue. The second course is being offered for the first time right now. It's called Global Organizations and Culture. You know, what is culture and how does culture influence how we behave with regards to peers, subordinates, people above us in an organization? And how can we work effectively across cultures, across other things that divide us? That course has been developed by Professor Shereen Joshi in the School of Foreign Service and Professor Michael O'Leary in uh, the business school. And I'm sad that I'm teaching at the same time they're offering the course because I would love to attend. They have developed what looks to be a really exciting course. Other key design objectives of the program is that there's application. It's not just theory but it's applying it. So for example, in this Global Organizations and Culture course, they're teaming with uh, some MSB alums who founded Sweetgreen. They're doing a big project on entering a new market. You know, food has a lot of cultural associations. Entering a new market with a food product presents a lot of issues, you know, related to culture. Again, I think, you know, foundational knowledge, what is culture? How does it influence us? And then application in the real world. We're in the process of developing what's called Signature Course 3, which is a two, three credit course sequence on kind of you could think of it as the firm or the global value chain. And the fourth signature course, which is another two, three credit course sequence on business, government and society. And these courses have credit bearing experiential learning courses associated with them. So with Signature Course 3, there's a two to three week experiential learning course that we're developing now that we envision following one multinationalist global value chain across several stages. And then for Signature Course 4, there are two one credit experiential learning courses associated with that that will be a big project, partnering, we hope, with an organization like the World Bank. Again, I didn't dream this up, but I'm very excited about the concept behind it. And I guess kind of feel that given my background, I've worked in the private sector. I've worked in government. I've worked in the nonprofit sector. I'm an international trade economist. Feels right.
0: Yeah, it seems like a perfect match. Tell us a bit about juggling all the things you do. Some of our younger colleagues have trouble juggling teaching and research and service of various sorts. You're doing a lot of all three, it seems to me. So how do you manage your time? Have you figured out a way to stay productive in all three of these things so that you've reached an equilibrium point and you're satisfied with your life? I haven't reached an equilibrium,
1: I don't think. And whenever my younger colleagues ask for advice, I always tell them, I can't tell you what to do. All I can tell you is what not to do. And that's what I did. Don't do what I did. I can tell you what I did and then don't do that. What are the don'ts? Don't become fixated on any professional goal. Your personal relationships are far more important than any professional objective. It'll all work out professionally. I'm exhibit A, it'll all work out and don't misplace your priorities. I think our former colleague and former Dean, David Thomas said, No professional success makes up for failure at
0: home. Nicely said. Well, I thank you for this time together, Brad, and we're all watching with great excitement the growth and the success of the BSBGA program. Truly a unique combination of two of our great schools here at Georgetown. And I know almost unique in the world what we're trying to do. So I think it's a perfect new thrust with Georgetown And it's such a perfect continuation of your contributions for global business from an intellectual point of view. So we are in your debt. And I thank you for this conversation today.
1: Bob, thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.